This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. We delve into contemporary urban issues with scholars, activists, and policymakers from around the world, providing informed views, state-of-the-art knowledge, and unusual insight. The podcast aims to advance our understanding of urban environment and how we might make them more just and democratic. Welcome to the Urban Political Podcast. My name is Markus Kipp, and in this episode, I interview Roger Kyle, the author of the book *Suburban Planet*. In another episode of the Urban Political, we review this book. But today we're going to explore in greater depth Roger's thinking in relation to global suburbanization, in particular in view of its political consequences. Roger Kyle is a professor at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto. He researches global suburbanization, urban political ecology, cities and infectious disease, and regional governance. He's a co-founder of the International Network for Urban Research and Action, INURA, and he was the principal investigator of the project Global Suburbanisms, which was a global collaboration with about 50 researchers for the past decade. The Suburban Planet, the book that we are going to talk about, is in certain ways the synthesis of Roger's insights and experiences stemming from this project. I had the pleasure to meet Roger in June at a pub in Berlin. Wonderful to meet you. Thanks for agreeing to be part of the um, podcast for the episode. Thanks for having me, Markus. So, in a nutshell, what is the book Suburban Planet about? What is, is its main argument? I guess its main argument is that um, urban researchers and urban practitioners uh, should take their eyes off the uh, um, the city center in both a real sense and in a conceptual sense that all urban thinking starts from the center of the city, has always started from the center of the city, which is to some degree historically logical. But we're now entering uh, in the 21st century a period in which we can better understand the, the urban and even the city and even the center of the city if we understand the massive suburbanization processes that go on around the world. And that is really the important part here that suburbanization has always been looked at as mostly a North American, Anglo-Saxon phenomenon. But now we uh, see this happening around the world, and this actually changes the notion of suburbanization uh, in ways that will then have feedback effects on how we understand the city. To what extent um, does your experience, experience of uh, working and living in Toronto influence uh, the, the writing of the book? It does to a, a great degree, but... I think that my interest in this topic had already been formed by previously living in Frankfurt and in Los Angeles for many years, uh, which I think is important because I've seen both those um, experiences or developments in the 20th century in those 
two global cities, Frankfurt, Los Angeles. I, I don't have just a North American view of suburbanization. I do not just have a European view of the process of suburbanization. In some interesting ways, when I moved to Toronto, my mind, my eyes were open to see how much Toronto is a synthesis of the European and North American experience. And now, um, perhaps, um, uh, Toronto becomes also a prime um, post-national, in a way, uh, example of suburbanization or urbanization in general. We are a magnet for immigration. Uh, much of the immigration now comes from non-European countries. Uh, so Toronto is a workshop for that new type of uh, cosmopolitan, uh, internationalized uh, suburbanization that we have seen in many parts of the world. And um, people used to say um, that Toronto was Vienna surrounded by Phoenix, Arizona, to show that it had these two qualities of a European, European city core and a North American suburban um, periphery. I much like to say now that Toronto is actually Los Angeles, surrounded by Shanghai. Great. Could you explain your, your thinking in relation to the LA School of Urbanism? So, and in what sense does your book, your approach, go beyond uh, such such ideas as the post metropolis uh, of Edward Soldier? Uh, I think that the much of what. Uh, Soja and Deer and, and others who have been working and doing incredible work, work did incredible work in the 1980s and 1990s into the, to the 2000s on this body of work we call the Los Angeles School. And what they did was to, uh, to bring us conceptually out of the city center. Uh, that was a very important um, advance in these kinds of studies. And we, of course, uh, pay our tributes to uh, that research and that worldview. The problem with the LA school, as with all such schools, as if they are uh, bound to a particular place, like the Chicago school also before it, uh, the problem with all those schools is, of course, that they tend to become reified. They become, they, 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 they become uh, almost Uh, like a, a concrete that sets after a while and be, people don't see it as an active uh, form of thinking about things anymore. So uh, unfortunately, when people now hear LA School or even when they hear Los Angeles, uh, they uh, think that they misunderstand the project of the LA School as if it meant to say, which in some of the writings they said, and maybe I also said it when I worked on Los Angeles, that L.A. is the model for all cities. So that actually is not, uh, cannot be held up. So um, when Ed Soja, for example, uh, who unfortunately passed uh, recently, uh, when Ed Soja was talking about Orange County um, as a model of the post-metropolis, it appeared almost as if all post-metropolitan -met post Uh, experience will be like the one in Orange County. And that, of course, is not tenable anymore. Um, it is for a variety of reasons. First of all, Los Angeles isn't the model for all cities, just as Chicago is not the model for all cities. But also because um, the 
almost uh, typical American manifest destiny understanding of moving across the, the settlers moving across the American continent to that new frontier in California where we now see the Pacific century rise and LA being the, the world capital of the Pacific century uh, that, that led to a certain hubris uh, of seeing all urban development in the world as a resultant of not only the American Uh, trajectory of urbanization, but also the Western trajectory of urbanization, as if we had to go from New York to Chicago to L.A. Um, to arrive at the highest stage of urbanization. And I think that is inscribed to some degree in the L.A. school. We took a different approach as we started in places like um, Johannesburg and Shanghai and Istanbul and those larger cities uh, outside of the West, outside of the Western trajectory. And we looked for what Soja would have called post, the post-metropolis in the suburbs of Istanbul and not in, you know, on the other side of the American continent. And I think that gave our project a different touch. And I hope that our project is read in that way, that we have always tried to not only empirically to avoid saying this is the model, Uh, but also to conceptually allow for new developments uh, to be uh, thought about by the people who experience them in those places that I mentioned. So in a recent book that we published called, edited, called uh, Massive Suburbanization, we took Istanbul as the core from which we then spanned around, out, uh, 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 fanned out across the globe looked at many case studies in Africa, in East Asia, uh, but also across Europe and the Americas to see how those developments in uh, places like Istanbul and Joburg and so on are being interreferenced in new ways. That was never the message and never the mandate of the LA school. So in that sense, we're also methodologically different. So in the book you write, you, 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 you seem also to struggle with, with the wording, no? So how can you escape the urban-suburban dichotomy or binary? Binary. Well, it turns out we can't. <clears throat> You're the second person in two days that asked me that question uh, because everybody will return to that question because we... Unlike the L.A. school, for example, that invented an enor enormous vocabulary of new terminology to talk about these new forms, we decided to, stuck, to stick with the suburban as a terminology. But the suburban, uh, suburbanization and suburbanisms as suburban ways of life, um, that uh, is caught in its own cage. You cannot unsee this word once you've seen it. So to fill it with new meaning is very, very difficult. Uh, but we still decided to stick with it. So some of us, Fulong Wu, Nick Phelps, and others, have um, spoken for a while about something like post-suburbia. Uh, that is an interesting concept, but it suffers from that other thing, which is to define what was before and what is after. Is there a dividing line between the suburb and the post-suburb? We don't know. Then some of us are, um, experimented with and were very much influenced by the German planner Tom Sieverts uh, with his idea of the Zwischenstadt, the in-between city. I personally have used this terminology a lot, uh, also in 
a generative way, not necessarily in the way that Tom Sievert always intended it, uh, but we used that because it allowed us to think exactly in that gray zone because it swishing in between allows you to think in a, in a gray zone in between the city and and the urban but uh, that also has its problems because uh, the city and the suburban uh, that also has its problems because um, it doesn't account for some of the, uh, the other new forms that exist outside of the city uh, and the suburbs, right? So the, uh, how do you deal with all those kinds of things? Um, uh, people like Lars Lerup are talking about the continuous city, which I find an interesting term. Uh, but again, uh, these are all in the trajectory of European-American planning. So uh, if we want to resolve this dichotomy problem, we now actually need to conceptually look at Uh, people uh, like Teresa Caldera is talking about the peripheral city. We need to talk about uh, Ananya Roy's appeal for new geographies of theory, where uh, we're not saying this is resolved, but at least the appeal has to be there. We need to look at uh, Abdul Malik Simons uh, and Edgar Peters's uh, uh, new thinking about uh, the, uh, both the morphology, but also the relationality of the urban in these new areas in Africa that have never been urban. They have not the tradition of European or American or Asian urbanism, but are developing completely new forms of interactivity that are always by definition in between because the uh, contradictions of the city and the countryside are never resolved uh, to the degree that they were historically resolved in European feudalism or in the industrial city in the United States or in Canada, right? So uh, we are still on that track of trying to come to terms with it. Um, I have, for my own practice as a writer, as a thinker, uh, now switched almost entirely to think, to speak about extensive or extended urbanization, which... I'm on the one hand sort of, of course, uh, see in parallel to some of the thinking of Christian Schmidt and, uh, and Neil Brenner and their idea of implosion, explosion that they take from in planetary urbanization. But more importantly, perhaps another Brazilian uh, theorist, uh, Roberto Luis uh, Montemor, who uh, is uh, at, uh, uh, in uh, Belo Horizonte at the university there and He, for a generation now, has developed this idea of extended urbanization on the basis of French philosopher Henri Lefebvre, um, in which he has looked, Montemor has looked at the uh, Brazilian uh, process of urbanization that always involved the Amazon uh, as a space of accumulation. So the cities in Brazil could not be understood without the Amazon. So the center can never be understood without the periphery. And for me, this is a breakthrough, an intellectual breakthrough, something that I like to work with uh, as we move forward. Because I see most of the problems that we are now encountering in the 21st century um, to be situated in that gray zone, in between extended urban zone in which we now live our lives. So talking to about uh, Christian Schmidt and uh, Neil Brenner, so what is the specific contribution of uh, 
this uh, global suburbanism or the suburban planet in, uh, to such ongoing debates around planetary urbanization? Well, uh, maybe you should ask Christian and uh, Neil whether we make a marker their project. It's not. Uh, it's not directly my project. My, I mean, as I've been uh, influenced by Lefebvre uh, since the 1980s and thought about urban society since that time, as those, uh, um, as the two of them also have. But I, to some degree, find the planetary urbanization debate bay to, um, in, in reality, it became too, um, too universal in a way and too, too, too claustrophobic, um, which then, on the other hand, led to a series of more or less justified critiques of that theory. And I don't really want to get in between those fronts at this point. Um, I have sympathies with both. I'm probably more on the political economy side of Christian and, and Neil, and this is just comes easier to me than some of the more post-structuralist thinking. But I, um, I think that, if anything, what I would say, and this is uh, not a, you know, a self-aggrandizement, but I think what we have offered, the 50 of us who've been working on global suburbanization, is to look at a specific aspect of the planetary urban. Um, and we have done so with a variety of approaches, with a, uh, a mixed epistemologies that can't all, all be reduced to this uh, project of planetary urbanization. I am probably more influenced by Lefebvre than many of my uh, colleagues in the project of global suburbanisms. Um, but I think that we, one of the things that we have I think attempted is to bring a, a very pluralist um, understanding to the study of the global city, the globalizing city, and we have specifically looked at that aspect that in planetary urbanization would probably be called the explosion of the city, um, but we never, we avoided as much as we could to... Um, to look only at the explosion as if not to replicate the mistake of the traditional suburban studies literature that made its home in the suburbs and then look back at the city center. So I think we, our contribution is along pushing that line out more and to begin to see more the connectivity between what was classically called the suburb with the rest of the urban region. And I think in that sense, we are, of course pulling in the same direction as the planetary urbanization people, but maybe with a less um, uh, total, total, totalizing uh, uh, epistemology. So talking about uh, Lefebvre, um, you're right. The urban revolution does not just return from the periphery to the core, but opens the city towards urban society. This means that the full realization of the urban promise, the complete saturation of the social with forms of urban life, now occurs mainly through the explosion of the city into heretofore unknown dimension. Uh, could you elaborate? What is the urban promise? 
I must have been high on something when I wrote that sentence. I have no idea. Um, the, the, well, the urban promise is that the, the urban promise is the, uh, the promise of urban society. And in a completely different context, after I, re read the, after I wrote the book and after I wrote this, I think, uh, I wrote an article in which I made the claim that I, I went back to early writings by Marx And there's an interesting um, passage in the Paris manuscripts um, in the um, in the in the very early writings of Marx, where he talks about communismus als die Verkehrsform selbst, which is the idea of uh, a post-capitalist society in which. Uh, humans can be free of all previous uh, relationships that dragged humanity into division. That's my words, not Marx's words. And so throughout history, whether you believe in a teleology of class struggle or in other, any other you know, theory of history, it doesn't matter. But in all theory, you can write theory as a set of contradictions and struggles, class and otherwise, um, in which the various uh, um, stages in which humanity propelled itself to where we are now were built on conflict of one or the other kind. And uh, it, it, various philosophers have thought about what it could be that will get us to that point where we'll stop foregrounding those contradictions and start resolving those contradictions. And what I find, uh, this is the promise of the city, what I find uh, interesting about Lefebvre's understanding of urban society, which, is, which he sees as a distinct form of human history beyond the industrial society, which is still uh, caught up in those conflicts, class struggles and other conflicts that exist and that, you know, don't allow us to settle down as humanity, doesn't allow us to free ourselves from that, that in his idea of, of a fully realized urban society that, as he says, when everything is urban, everything is also rural. When we're in that new world, which isn't, you know, he thought about this 50 years ago. Now, for us, it's much easier to understand that we are already beginning to be in this uh, world of, of urban society, uh, of a complete urbanization. If we are in that world, I think this is the, the precondition to realize what Marx meant in the 1840s when he was talking about communism as die Verkehrsform selbst. Uh, to talk about the ultimate conditions from which we as humans can move forward together. That is, the prom for me, the promise of the urban. Now, that kind of promise has always been sought after in the inner city. You know, people have always looked for the market square and the, and the polis, in Athens and, uh, you know, the small streets of New York City, uh, as in Jane Jacobs and, and so many other examples. They've looked for 
liberation through the urban uh, in the inner city. Uh, the left has glorified the Paris Commune. Uh, you know, these kinds of places were always seen as central, not only to particular cities, but also to particular histories of liberation. And now, in that complicated, complex, convoluted sentence that you read back to me, uh, I think I'm trying to say that today, we cannot allow ourselves to go back to those central places to seek that liberation, but we need to look at the generalized urban at urban society, at complete urbanization as the basis from which we have to move forward. And that is particularly, for example, true in an age of climate change, right? Where, you know, to have beautiful, compact inner cities where people ride around on bicycles and walk places, it's not going to save the world. So we need, actually need to do something about the rest of all those people uh, living in the rest of all those places uh, that are currently being built for another three billion people that are going to join us uh, in the course of the century. It is hard to say whether, uh, you know, out of those uh, amorphous landscapes of urbanity, those in-between cities, what kind of political uh, movement will come. It is very difficult to say. But if anything, it cannot come from the city center because the city center has become a void place of gentrification. A void because... Uh, it has been emptied out in all, you know, people still moving to cities, but they don't live there in the densities and they don't, the proletarian uh, aspect of those dense inner cities has gone away. The working class lives in the suburbs, the working class lives in the inner suburbs uh, under very difficult circumstances uh, where the rents are high and jobs are few and uh, the, 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 the uh, public transit takes a long time to move you around. Uh, schools are not very well serviced. This is where the majority of the people are now live. So what kind of politics can come from this? Well, not the classical politics that we expected. Some of that politics will be reactionary. Some of that politics will not be to the liking of many of us who belong to the traditional left. But if anything... We need to take that seriously. We need to understand that this is the world in which people live, just as we imagine people to work in factories to become revolutionaries. Uh, we need to now understand how the conditions, the actual conditions in which the real conditions in which people live. As my friend J.P. Addy and I said uh, in an article, we want to understand the real existing regionalism. We want to understand what are the actual things that get people to become political, that get people to get angry, that get people to be active in their communities. Those are about those issues that I was talking about, about long ways to work, bad schools, um, terrible environmental conditions, uh, high price of gasoline, if you want to hear that. I mean, I'm not uh, you know, in favor of automobilization, but uh, you know, that's the reality in which people live because there are no alternatives to how to get around. And, and, and these are the kinds of issues in the industrial, these are just the, you know, in, uh, I'm answering this question as somebody who lives in Canada. This is the kind of uh, political environment uh, there. But you can also, and I, we don't have the time to do that, but, you know, you can speak about any big metropolis, any big urban center in the world now, and you find a large degree of political unhappiness, social suffering, in the peripheries of those cities. Uh, we didn't expect that, as the left didn't expect that to happen. We saw it 
political activities to come out of the city center. And they will to some degree because that's still where the students live and where the radicals are and where, you know, a lot of the conflicts will. And the sim symbolism of the squares will never go away. We will still, you know, congregate and assemble in the center of the city, even though the center of the city has lost its significance as a place of power. You also refer to the right to the city, the Lefebvre's battle cry, and you speak about uh, Occupy the Strip Mall, and uh, you also refer to the right to the suburbs. Um, could you please elaborate on, on the implications of the book for such right to the city movements uh, or urban justice movements? Yeah, quickly, uh, the idea of the right to the city was born out of the thinking. This is a very abbreviated version of this. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. This is a very complicated story. But Lefebvre um, understood, of course, that the students in Nanterre in the late 1960s at in that new university it was built by the French state to accommodate the rising numbers of students uh, in the periphery of that great French capital city, uh, that those students who were out there had none of the social rights, economic uh, and cultural opportunities as would normally be afforded to young people in the city. So this idea of the right to the city came from the idea, let's ask for what they have. Let's, you know, go to the West Bank, in, uh, the left bank in, uh, in Paris and say, this is what we want. We want to be in the center. We want what they have here in the center. So this is the, 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 this is the, the, um, uh, the figure of thought that is behind this idea. And it's more complicated now because the right to the city movement itself now, the new one for the last 10, 15 years, has, of course, created different kinds of demands But this is where it originally came from. So what I'm saying is, in my book, but also sort of something that I believe in politically, is that uh, Lefebvre, in the Lefebvrean thinking, the right to the city was, was defined from a deficit. The deficit was, we don't have what you have. Let's have what you have. But it's now not possible anymore to point to that city center and to say, we want what they have. Because, no, we in the periphery do not want what they have. So the right to the city now needs to be the right to urban society, not the right to the city. It needs to be the right to an equal, uh, 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 you know, an equal society, a society without racism, a society without exploitation. Right? These kinds of things you don't find in the city anymore. The city is that place, not anymore. It's not you know, that, prom that place of promise as it used to be in the 20th century or in the 19th century. You cannot point to the city as Stadtluft macht frei. You cannot say that anymore because nothing makes you free in the city. The city is a corporate city now. It's not a city of, uh, you know, and I'm not, uh, you know, saying that what we've seen in the last few years in Barcelona and in other places where people have taken power again over their, uh, you know, municipal uh, politics to say, we want to control what we're doing here. That's not what I'm, I'm not denouncing those kinds of politics. What I'm saying is that the city isn't what it used to be. Uh, so the, when we called for the right to the suburbs, 
in that sense, as I meant it here, we're calling really for the right to urban society with all the promises of urban society, as I have previously explained. What would be inspiring examples of uh, current day uh, movements that do this kind of claim for the right to urban society, which, which come to mind? Well, the, as I've been working on this, you can imagine that there have been quite a few movements that I had in mind. When, so when I, read, when I wrote this piece on Occupy the Strip Malls, Obviously, I had the Occupy movement in, in mind, but, you know, where did the Occupy movement go? And it was, you know, big in 2011. Uh, who knows what's going on in 2019 as we're having this conversation. That's not really, I uh, can't point to that anymore because even not even my 20-year-old students remember that because they, that was something that happened when they were 10 years old. So that, there is no continuous uh, conversation. But let's, you know, movements come and go. Some are here to stay to some degree, but, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter certainly was one of those movements, particularly because uh, Black Lives and the reparations movement in the United States and also in some degree in Canada, the indigenous rights movements uh, in many parts of the world that have now a strong urban appeal uh, That those I would mention as hopeful examples. And of course, but you can claim that for everything and everybody. Uh, the Fridays movement uh, in, that is happening as we are talking today on a Friday, as it's happening every Friday around the world now, that uh, uh, teens, students, high school students, students are walking out of classrooms to demand to live in a different kind of world. And this is the kind of movement I have in mind. That is a genuine global movement in urban society. This is a movement that now spans the globe. It comes out of uh, the, the, uh, the students who live in a global world, uh, and that global world is an urban world. And But it's not the kind of urban world where uh, um, their parents grew up. Neither those parents who grew up in the inner city uh, neighborhoods uh, of European cities um, as the children of 68, nor uh, the kind of suburbs that North American children, for example, uh, North American parents of those children grew up. Uh, these, this is a new generation of children who already use the city in completely different ways than the consumerist capitalist society had proposed to them. These are kids who don't get their driver's license at all or before they're in their late 20s. Uh, these are kids who don't own cars. These are kids who are willing to live in, in smaller apartments. These are uh, kids who are asking completely different kinds of questions about what urban society is supposed to offer. Now, I know that once I've said this, maybe this movement ends tomorrow and something else will come. So it is not a specific type of movement, a specific type of example that can get us out of this. But it's the continuity of and the intensity of those new uh, movements, the anti-black racism movement, the uh, indigenous movement, the climate uh, emergency movements. It's the intensity, the globality, and the and the non-compromising quality of those movements that I think needs to give us hope. Uh, this is the new world, this is the new, new generation that brings this kind of hope to this world, and it's an urban world. 
Thank you for listening to The Urban Political. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.